Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors and senior executives. My guest today is Andrea Bonin-Blanc. Andrea is the author of the books Gloom to Boom, The Reputation Risk Handbook, and The Artificial Intelligence Imperative. Among her professional work experiences are two decades as a C-suite global corporate executive with broad accountabilities, including governance, risk, ethics, health and safety, and more. She serves on several boards and advisory boards across green energy, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, and the arts. She's an expert in cyber risk governance, holding the Carnegie Mellon CERT certification in cyber risk oversight. Andrea earned a joint JD in law and PhD in political science from Columbia University. She's an adjunct professor at NYU, a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and in 2018 was among the first class of DCRO exemplars, named so in recognition of her professional integrity, innovation, leadership, and service. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much. That was a lovely introduction. Well, I'm very happy to have you with us. And I'm wondering if you could, since our focus here is on board members and people who are either aspiring to or currently serving on boards, can you tell a little bit more about your background and the boards on which you're presently serving? Sure. Um, I'll start with just a snapshot of my background because I think it informs everything that I've done in my life. So I was born and raised in Germany and Spain and grew up under uh, authoritarian regime of uh, Generalissimo Francisco Franco, uh, which uh, was a very interesting thing to experience as a young child and, and teen. Uh, when I came to New York City, um, uh, from which my father was originally, so I was always an American uh, throughout this period, I um, went to school and uh, did a graduate degree in uh, political science, a PhD in political science about Spain's transition to democracy. And then I went off to do a law degree and uh, become a lawyer, etc. But um, that whole international background, interest in uh, democracy and governance, um, etc. has always been part of who I am. So in my career, I had the opportunity to get on a few nonprofit boards early on when I was quite young. And that has now moved into um, not only having been a general counsel, a corporate secretary, serving on boards, um, but in the last seven years with my business, uh, GEC Risk Advisory, I've been advising boards and I have also uh, started serving on some uh, startup boards and uh, still serve on some nonprofit boards. So among the, um, the startup boards that I'm serving is Ethical Intelligence, which is a EU-based uh, artificial intelligence ethics consultancy, which is a fascinating um, new company that is doing some really, really cool things, injecting ethics into, um, into all considerations about technology and uh, big data and privacy. Greenwood Partners, which is a Spanish-based um, green uh, finance firm, which is looking to uh, revolutionize the use of green energy and old facilities uh, that convert into, uh, into green uh, energy. And then I'm also on the Epic Theater Ensemble Board, which is a nonprofit in New York City serving the uh, public school community through theater. And then finally, I'm also on the NACD New Jersey uh, uh, Chapter Board, uh, and that's part of the overall NACD network of uh, regional chapters. And uh, yeah, so I'm very involved. And then, of course, I do a lot of work for boards on uh, topics that I can help them with. Well, and I think that NACD New Jersey board um, is interesting. We have three DCRO exemplars who have been part of that. So that must be a powerhouse group. 
<laughs> from from your descriptions, I mean, you've seen things deep inside corporations. Um, you're looking at the broad perspective as well. How has that changed as you've moved to the board level? Um, say from from the general counsel perspective, we we really are seeing everything going on in the organization to the board level where that information is somewhat limited. Um, how does that change your, your mindset? How have you had to change your approach? Well, I, that's a very incisive question and I think that's where uh, I think a lot of people fall short once they become board members uh, is that they don't uh, take the perspective of someone who's in management as well as they should and or they don't exercise their um, their knowledge uh, of what it means to be management. And so we sometimes have that divide of boards that are a little bit too hands off and management that doesn't want boards, uh, you know, having their, their mitts on them. And I think having been a general counsel or any other C-suite kind of a member, um, I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle once you become a board member and sort of navigating that delicate balance between not getting too involved with management, but really asking management to be accountable and so that translates, for example, into um, having members of uh, not top management, but maybe middle-level management come in to give presentations from time to time on some of the top issues. Uh, and the problem with boards, I mean, I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit here in terms of a discussion of, of board issues, but one of the problems with boards is they don't have enough people like you and me, uh, David, to be very frank, on their boards to sort of look at the issues from a risk lens, from an ethics lens, from a corporate responsibility lens. And so we have a lot of uh, homogeneity on boards in terms of expertise, CEOs and CFOs, but not enough CROs and chief ethics and compliance officers and others that have sort of uh, labored in the orchards of, of ESG uh, topics, I would say. Well, and that, that brings me to a point that I've, I've read, I think either that you, places that you've written or I've seen you interviewed, um, talking about the value of diversity in the boardroom, and I don't just mean gender diversity, but experience diversity, which I think is something that you were just uh, hinting at, um, diversity of perspective. Can you talk a little bit about why you think all those aspects of diversity are important at the board level? Um, they're absolutely key, I think, and, and now we're living through this uh, unprecedented global uh, crisis uh, with COVID-19, which I think is highlighting why it's so important to have people like us on boards because we're bringing sort of that uh, longer term, uh, short term and longer term risk lens that helps with preparedness, helps with crisis management, helps with things like business continuity. And so if you don't have those kinds of people, you know, uh, uh, one or two or three on your board who have deep experience with those kinds of issues, then boards are left a little bit on their own. And, you know, you can always hire consultants and you can always uh, ask management, but I think having an actual peer on the board who is uh, looking out for those issues is really important. And I'll tell you a quick story. When I was first general counsel, my first uh, corporate executive job was at a PSENG Global, which was the global division of a big utility uh, in the Northeast. And I was a member of the executive team and everybody on that team, we were about eight or nine people, uh, were not only men, um, but they were also all finance people or, you know, uh, uh, chief financial officers, operations people, people who were running the business and, and uh, sales and development and so on. I was the only person who 
brought a different lens to that picture. And I'll never forget, um, not to you know uh, uh, build myself up too much here, but I'll never forget how important my view was in our weekly executive team meetings because if I hadn't been there, we would not have thought of a bunch of different issues when we were first, first going into China, for example, uh, to build, own, and operate electric power, or when we were going into Latin America to bid on uh, electric power privatizations. There were all kinds of issues that we needed to deal with, whether it's environmental health and safety, or corruption, or fraud. And I would bring in those lenses, and um, I know that I saved us from a number of potential problems. So I think the same kind of lens needs to exist at the board level, and that's why I'm so passionate about this. Well, I, and I think there's a, a sense of fragility that comes in when you don't bring in those other perspectives because there are things that you haven't considered, some of which might be existential threats. When you think you're making a good decision based on all the experiences in the room, but the experience in the room is not broad enough. Exactly. That's well, exactly let me, right. Yeah. Let me, and let me use this then as a way to transition into a discussion of your most recent book, which is called Gloom to Boom. And in that, you start the book by talking about, um, this would be prior to the, the environment when right now, but global synchronized growth. And then you make this comment, yet we seem to be blowing it. And you weren't necessarily talking about a pandemic back then, but rather an environment that was ripe for potential problems. So now we're amidst a global pandemic and economic shutdown, and we're hearing people talk about resiliency and response to the problem. What kind of lessons and messages from the book would you apply to the current environment if you were working with a board? You're talking to a board about where we sit today um, in relation to what, is, um, what they might do for the future. Sure. Um, so I've always had this view uh, that boards and senior management always need to have a strong global strategic risk lens uh, that they incorporate um, on a day-to-day -day basis into their business activities, but also long-term into their business strategy. And so, you know, companies that have uh, well-evolved enterprise risk management have a CRO or have, you know, other kinds of people that uh, look after these kinds of issues, whether it's cyber risk, whether it's um, environmental health and safety issues, whether it's supply chain issues. When you have those kinds of people feeding the right kind of information and um, also having a seat at the table when it comes to management of a company, um, then you can see these issues and incorporate them into your planning. And that also means that you're preparing for the eventualities that things might go south. And so you have the preparedness, you have the crisis management, you have the business continuity, uh, and you're informed. Now, you can't tell where every risk is coming from, and certainly the pandemic is something that, you know, the explosion that's happened all over the world, literally in synchronicity, is not something we would necessarily plan for in an individual company. But the information is out there. And if anybody takes a look at the World Economic Forum Global Risks Report from the last 15 years, and especially the one from 2020, you can see that infectious diseases or global pandemics is one of the top 10 or so um, most likely or most impactful risks. And so I think that companies, both at the management level and at the board level, need to have strategic risk management and governance incorporated into their day-to-day -day new normal. Um, it should have been there before. If it isn't there yet, it's, it's got to be in there because at the end of the day, you know, I wrote the book last year, but, um, and I couldn't foresee the pandemic itself. 
but I could foresee that something could happen. And it happened in the pandemic category. Uh, frankly, I'm very concerned about a couple of other potential large risks that could implode, um, like a cyber attack of some significance, for example. But what we see in this pandemic risk is sort of a conglomeration of other risks as well. It's having um, all kinds of economic impacts. It's having supply chain impacts. It's also even having cyber impacts. We're having more cyber attacks, more fraud uh, via the digital means than we've ever seen. So again, I could go on, but I think um, in a nutshell, boards and management need to have strategic risk governance and management as part of their normal routine. Well, I, and I like to talk about people who are involved in risk as thinking about the future stochastically. So we don't see one path or we don't see a few paths or potential outcomes. We tend to see the world as a distribution of possibilities and, and trying to reshape those into ones that are more favorable to us. And what I think part of it I heard you say is that it's the ability to respond to something that you didn't expect that might distinguish something that's well governed uh, in terms of risks versus something that you know, was run of the mill or hadn't even really thought through how you'd respond to something unexpected. So with that in mind, let me ask you about bringing in this mindset um, that you bring in. I'm not saying you have to have a stochastic mindset, but the mindset of your experience. When you talk to other board members, so you come into this environment where it's you're brand new, you're somebody they haven't worked with before, you're unlike anybody else on the board, what challenges have you faced getting them to understand these concepts of risk and how risk managers might conceive of resiliency or responsiveness? You know, the, I think the, the biggest challenge to incorporating this mindset uh, permanently into both the boardroom and management is that human beings by nature um, don't want to look at the long-term risk. They might want to look at the long-term opportunity and the long-term good things, but they don't want to think about how risk may unfold in the long term and have negative impacts on their business plan or their uh, you know, their M&A uh, strategy or whatever it is that they're trying to do. So I think by nature, we, we don't want to uh, plan for the worst. I think some of us are built that way. Uh, we were probably born with some, some kind of a gene that says that we're risk managers. Um, but I think that the biggest challenge, uh, both in management and on the board, is to get people to understand that this is part of life and that actually preparing for it and having that preparedness I was uh, talking about earlier, the crisis management plan and team, the scenario planning, uh, having a real business continuity program in place, having backup plans for your data, all this stuff actually builds value and resilience over time. And so I, I, you know, I'd love to see in the future some kind of a study that shows companies that had good resilience plans in place versus those that didn't and what happened to their value proposition over time, you know, with COVID-19 uh, five years out, what happened? I think that'll be a very interesting study for somebody to do because I believe, uh, you know, very deeply that having those preparedness plans actually adds value, but we have to convince both the CEOs and the board members that these are long-term sustainability issues rather than quick gains, quarterly returns, those kinds of things. Well, and let me, let me talk a little bit about relationships. Um, I always think of every aspect that an organization is engaged in is about relationship with somebody. 
and you talk about reputation risk and the importance of relationship with stakeholders. In a way, is that what we're talking about with our ability to be responsive and resilient? Is it that we won't be disappointing people who are counting on us if we do that well? Absolutely, and I think this is in a way something that's already been moving, and I think it's going to move more quickly now with this uh, global pandemic, at least the hopeful, positive side of me uh, hopes, hopes that will happen. And what I mean by that is that we're seeing, you know, in the recent uh, 10, 15 years where social media and reputation risk have uh, achieved a, sort, a certain amount of, um, of traction and, and the big CEOs are starting to pay attention to their Twitter feed and what can happen to their products and services if something goes wrong. So, so there's um, now a track record of social media, of reputation, risk, and opportunity. And so um, what, I, what I hope is going to happen is that people are going to see stakeholders um, as part of their ecosystem. The shareholder will always be primo inter pares, first among equals. However, there are other stakeholders that are really important to the ecosystem. And those are, of course, the employees, of course, the customers and a few others, supply chain, regulators, media, etc. So if a company is savvy about knowing who their most important stakeholders are because of the impacts that they have or the potential negative or positive impacts that the stakeholders may have on, on, on you as a company, um, the more savvy those companies get about their stakeholders and managing and dealing their relationships with those stakeholders, the more they're retaining protecting and I believe growing uh, intrinsic value in, in their brand or their, their products and services. And so I think we need to go to this, this um, different way of looking at um, capitalism. And I, I've heard the term stakeholder capitalism being used a lot. I kind of like it because I think it's still capitalism. We're not saying we're going to all become communists tomorrow. Um, it's capitalism, but I, I like to call it capitalism with a human face. And given my European roots, uh, I actually uh, like the version of capitalism that we've seen more or less in some of the European countries versus some of the capitalism we've seen in the U.S., which to me sometimes has been a little bit too aggressive, too winner-take-all. Um, and I think we're seeing some of those consequences unfolding, sadly, in our society in the midst of this huge crisis in how certain employees are treated in how our healthcare system doesn't cater to the most needy, uh, in how uh, employees that are essential uh, are not being protected properly, um, and so on. And so I could go on about that, but I think this idea of stakeholder capitalism uh, is, a, is a very um, hopeful one, I believe, and it doesn't take away from what people say the purpose of business is, which is to make shareholders richer. But I think shareholders get richer when the business caters properly to the most important stakeholders. Well, I, my favorite definition of reputation risk is it's um, your ability to influence uh, and persuade. So mm -hmm. if you have good trust and a good reputation, the cost of every transaction is lower. Exactly. And that necessarily makes the bottom line better. So, so you're right. I think you're serving both short-term and long-term uh, interests by pursuing that. So chapter five, in gloom to boom is called transforming governance risk into opportunity from authoritarianism to stakeholder centricity kind of what we're, we're talking about here in terms of that focus um, you mentioned earlier that you had grown up 
uh, under Franco in Spain. And in another interview of yours, I saw that um, you had talked about how this had an influence on how you perceived companies and their work in terms of ethics and integrity. Can you relate those two a little bit more to us? Of course. You know, one of the things that I've learned uh, over my 30 plus years of uh, being in the private sector, serving many different roles, is that everyth everything that happens in an organization happens because of the leader, good, bad, or ugly, right? So I think the leadership tone from the top is extraordinarily important in defining the culture of the organization. And I'm talking generally here. It could be a university. It could be a business. It could be a nonprofit. Uh, and I think it also is what happens in a country, which is maybe an authoritarian country or maybe it's a democracy. The leadership tone from the top suffuses the rest of the organization or nation. And so good governance to me and good leaders is the difference between having a good life and a bad life. And I'm being very simplistic here, but I think that having grown up in Franco, Spain, and then I also have uh, a lot of sort of historical uh, knowledge from my mother's growing up in Nazi Germany, my father fighting for the US uh, in World War II, and then working in Japan and Germany post-World War II. Um, I have a lot of family history, and then of course my own interests, which I developed uh, through a PhD in political science, examining the Spanish transition to democracy that happened when Franco died. Um, that whole um, governance and, and responsibility at the top, I think, is very similar for both nations and corporations. And I think CEOs, the, the, the really good CEOs, the emotionally intelligent ones, the ones that think about the stakeholders, the ones that think about corporate responsibility, always in furtherance of the business, of course, um, are the ones that uh, serve their stakeholders best and create the most value. And, um, you know, you can, you can claim that this is all qualitative um, observations rather than quantitative proof. But uh, I would, um, I would uh, uh, gamble on any quantitative proof that ever could come out uh, that it would be, uh, it would signal that democracies and better run companies actually create more sustainable long-term value for their stakeholders. Well, there is math behind that. So if people want the quantitative side, I'm happy to talk to them about that too. There you go. There it you is go. there. It's qualitative and quantitative and um, we'll get there. Don't worry. We're going to get, we'll get people to that, uh, to that way Good. of thinking. <laughs> I'm um, counting on you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm counting on you too. I think people who are listening to this understand why, um, hopefully have a better understanding why you were chosen as one of our first exemplars. Um, I, there's so much there that you embody in terms of what we look for in that role. And it's a very small group so far who've been given that award. So the, the more I hear about your perspective on this, the more I understand why you're nominated and selected. Um, so I, I, I appreciate your sharing all of this with us. Well, I when appreciate you write, your kindness on that. <laughs> oh, sorry. When, when, when you're researching your books, inevitably you come across work that you didn't know about or authors that are particularly influential uh, in, the, in the ways of thinking. You have a lot of experiences, but were there any authors um, that you found who've been most influential to you when thinking about governance and board work and your board service? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of good authors, including you, by the way, so I, I don't want to miss out on, on uh, praising your work, which has been uh, extraordinary over the years, so uh, thank you for what you're contributing. You're kind. Um, there's, you. no, not at all. Uh, credit where credit is due. 
Um, but there's another author I, I like a lot. Um, he's written a couple of books. Uh, the, the book that he's written caters to small cap companies. It's uh, called The Perfect Board, and it's yep. Adam Epstein. Yep, I know that um, one well. Well, and, and I think Adam really uh, provides a unique voice because while he's looking at it from a small cap perspective, he's actually uh, offering lessons and tips and, uh, and really important, uh, valuable messages to all boards. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the, the lens that he applies is a, a slightly more critical uh, lens. Um, but it's also one that sort of looks at why things aren't working or why things should apply differently at different levels. And I really like that. And I think one of the shining uh, lessons that comes through from, from his approach, which I really believe in too, in terms of the work that I do, is customize, customize, customize. It's not one size fits all. You don't do all kinds of things in smaller cap boards that you do in bigger boards and vice versa. And so I really, I really appreciate his uh, not only um, insightful uh, messages, but also his witty messages. Yeah, I would agree with you on that entirely. Um, Adam, I had a chance to talk, and uh, I got a copy of his book and enjoyed it. And I, I thought all those things that you had just said, and also about the practicality of the book. Um, Great. It's not, it's not too theoretical. It's really about how to get things done. So that's that's a nice recommendation. Sure. Um, so now let's think about somebody coming onto the board or a board that really has not considered this. You talked about customization and a lot of times when we get into ESG metrics and other evaluations of governance, people say, here's my list of things you need to have. It's a tick box exercise. But really governance I think is about how organizations live their mission and their values. How do you, well let's say when you're advising a board, What's the first step they should take if you'd like to see them establish a solid culture around risk governance as you define it in your world and your experience? What would that be for them? Well, you know, each of us comes from our own life experiences and, and what we've seen and what we've learned. So I, I might have a, a, a narrow vision of how this is done, but I actually think it's uh, a little broader than, than I give it credit. And that is the idea that um, Every company does have a mission, vision, values. Uh, it has a culture. Sometimes the culture doesn't correspond with the mission, vision, values, especially the values um, when you have a deep uh, divide between what the CEO says and what the CEO does. For example, you have a really potentially toxic or, or problematic uh, culture, like we saw, for example, with uh, you know some of the companies that got into deep trouble with their CEOs, like the Weinstein Company and Wynn Resorts and so on. But um, I think what needs to be done is the board needs to have an awareness of how important the culture is in the organization in terms of how well employees are going to, um, to do with the company. Is there a high turnover? Uh, when people leave, um, do they, uh, in their exit interviews, say unkind or uh, you know, worse kinds of things about the company culture? Those are kinds of small indicia that boards really need to hear about to understand what the real culture is. So I think it's really important for boards, A, to have people like us on there who are going to think about these things because if you're strictly a financial person, you may not think about these things. But with people who have been risk officers or ethics officers or you know corporate responsibility people, they're thinking about those kinds of cultural issues. And then you have to go into some nitty-gritty uh, reports from management. Have they done an employee survey? 
If so, what are the results? Um, have, uh, has the ethics and compliance function been providing updates on the ethics and compliance program, which has a lot of intricate, close uh, sort of relationship with culture? And so um, do you know what the whistleblower or, or ethics helpline hotline is yielding? Um, is it something that, that looks healthy or unhealthy? How, are, how is the company responding to issues? Is there a safe to speak up, listen up, action-oriented uh, culture? Or is there a culture of fear, a culture of cramming down on people, not letting them uh, speak? retaliating against them and so on. So there's a lot of different things that um, a sophisticated chief ethics and compliance, chief risk, um, you know, chief reputation officer can bring to the management and then can bring to the board. And the board has to be proactive in asking for these things. If they don't, they won't know what the culture is and um, it'll be hopeless. And I think it's really important to connect those dots because at the end of the day, the performance management of the CEO has to include some form of culture, culture indicia, uh, some form of uh, values, metrics. Is the CEO walking the talk or is the CEO just talking the talk? I, I like that. And that's one of the challenges in compensation, too, uh, is exactly. to, to show how you value that as opposed to just hitting particular benchmarks. And, and I think that's a really important point for boards. So I'm glad you brought that up. We're in a really volatile political, economic, and health environment. So I'm somewhat hesitant to ask you this next question. But board plates are pretty full. Is there anything else that's high on your radar for them to be thinking about risk and, and the risks that they'll need to take going forward? Well, I, I think we've covered this a little bit uh, already, but um, I, I have three words for you, COVID-19, COVID-19, and furthermore, COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and if we don't learn lessons from this moment, then I guess all hope is lost. But I think that what this um, pandemic is really bringing to the surface is the need for some of the things we talked about before, having preparedness, having the crisis management team and plan in place, not just on the shelf, but an actual active group of people that get together on a regular basis, review the plan, do some scenario exercises, actually connect with the board. Some of the best boards have crisis management input uh, one way or another. Um, they actually get involved with maybe some scenario planning. And some of the best boards also have someone on the board, whether it's the chair, the vice chair, the head of audit, or whoever, um, that is part of that, uh, an extended part of that crisis management team. So having those things there and having looked throughout the year at the strategic risk profile of the company. What are our top highest impact, most likely risks? What are we doing about it? Do we have a rapid deployment force of management people who are working on those things so that there are backup plans, business continuity plans. These are all things that need to be not back of mind, but front of mind. And they have to be front of mind at all times. I really believe that we've entered a completely different time here where uh, larger strategic risks are going to be part of our new normal. And so boards that are not prepared to acknowledge that and incorporate that as part of their governance are uh, putting their heads in the sand. They're ostriches as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's like a continuous cycle of anticipating, learning, and responding. 
and, and it has to be continuous and it has to be one that is at the board level always under discussion. What's new? What should we be thinking about differently? What are we doing to be new in the future? And I think you've done a really great job of talking about some of the foundations of that as well as the practical applications. And I apologize because we've run up against the end of our show and I could I could see that we could be talking for a couple more hours. So I yes. want to thank you very much, Andrea. This is really wonderful. Um, I, I hope that uh, you know things are well with you in New York. I know it's a difficult place for, for many people right now. But thank you for your service. Um, thank you for your help with everything that you've brought to us today. And I wish you continued uh, good fortunes in your work and, and uh, your work with others. Well, you are most kind and you're a leader in our uh, space, so I really appreciate being part of your podcast. And I do wish you also, you and yours, all the best for health and safety. And everybody listening to the podcast, make health and safety, um, uh, you know, a, a focal point of your lives. Uh, we all need to take care of each other. So thanks again. That's a great note to end on. Thank you. Thank you.